Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Depression is a leading cause of disability in the United States, affecting up to 21 million people each year. Unfortunately, 50% of depressed patients will not respond to treatment with the first antidepressant, and nearly 30% will not respond to multiple interventions. It has been over 60 years since the last oral medication with a novel mechanism of action has been approved by the FDA for depression. As of August 2022, this changed with the approval of an oral combination of dextromethorphan and bupropion. Today, Dr. Natalie Hagee, PharmD, covers the monoamine and glutaminergic pathways for the treatment of major depressive disorder, reviews the barriers of current treatments, and highlights the groundbreaking new drug, which may change the way we approach this mental health condition. So today we're going to get started on a story. And the story starts with a journey where we look at the monoamine pathway and in the for the treatment of major depressive disorder. And when we think about this journey, it's been full filled with many obstacles. And one being that the current regimens that we use treat our patients at best with the with the chance of a flip of a coin. That if I were to give a patient a certain medication that we use for our first line treatment, they only have the chance of getting better at at most 50%. And if we think about the way that we consider our, our care and how we want our patients to thrive in their life, that just can't be good enough. And so it's been several decades since they've actually developed a new oral medication for depression. In fact, dating back to when we all this actually all started. And now we have something that could change the way that we look at antidepressants um, from now until the future. And so for objectives today, we're going to describe the monoamine and glutaminergic pathway for the treatment of major depressive disorder, recognize response and remission rates of first-line treatment for major depressive disorder, and describe the clinical trials for dextromethorphan, bupropion, and its impact on the landscape of major depressive disorder. So taking a set of glance, first by defining what depression is. And the DSM-5 says that you need to have at least five or more symptoms, and one of them being at least depressive mood and lack of pleasure. And a lot of other things that can come out of this include not being able to sleep, losing weight, feeling working slow or speaking slowly, and a number of other depressive symptoms. In fact, depression is the leading cause of disability for people ages 15 to 44 years old, which comprise a good part of our, uh, our working class and those who have to go to work. The first antidepressant that anyone may use will be beneficial in at most 50% of patients. And this has an incredible impact financially on our healthcare system. In fact, uh, the Premier Hospital database collected that they had 136,000 hospitalizations for depression, and that cost exceeded $910 million, which goes to show that the impact of depression is more than maybe what meets the eye at first. 
And this also doesn't account in some of the lack of loss of productivity that occurs when people take sick days, maybe aren't able to focus as well, and things of that nature that are harder to define when we're looking at our direct costs associated with depression. And so like any good storybook, we have a timeline or a storyboard, if you will. And the first part where we'll set our stage is with the introduction and discovery of the monoamine pathway. Um, but before we get into what this looks like, I kind of want to gauge the audience's interpretation or baseline knowledge of some of the components of the monoamine pathway. So I would ask that you identify which of the following pharmacological targets is associated with the monoamine pathway. And I will admit, um, when making this presentation, this was definitely a difficult question for myself as well, thinking about what are the differences between maybe our monoamine and our glutaminergic pathways. And so uh, the correct answer is actually the alpha-2 receptor. Um, and we'll get into which of our first-line agents focus on the alpha-2 receptor, um, but the NMDA receptor is actually part of our glutaminergic pathway, which we'll discuss later in this presentation, uh, the mu receptor being where our opioids are and GABA um, in a different pathway as well. So to set the stage uh, for this slide. Right here is a beautiful depiction of a synapse. And so the top part being our presynaptic cleft and the bottom part being our postsynaptic cleft. In the middle of that first part, there are some vesicles which contain our monoamines, which are depicted by those tiny yellow dots. And then the purple triangles represent uh, the postsynaptic cleft and those receptors. Uh, so and then over here is our glial cell, which I'll get into the purpose of that as a part of um, this pathway. So this is a historical look at how we discovered what the monoamine pathway was. And so back in about the 1950s, there was this drug called reserpine, which was used for hypertension. We don't really, we don't use this drug anymore, so it might not be one that we've seen um, commonly, if at all. And so what they found, though, is that when patients were taking this medication, they experienced depressed mood. And they believed that this was because it depleted some of the monoamines in that synaptic cleft. And so while patients were taking this medication, they also started taking a medication called ipronizid, which is an indicated for malaria. However, when they found that patients were taking reserpine and then also potentially taking ipronizid, they actually experienced an elevation of mood, um, which caused them to then relieve that symptoms of depression. And they found that ipronizid actually works on the glial cell, specifically blocking the monoamine oxidase B, which we often hear monoamine oxidase inhibitors being a medication we use for um, depression. And this is kind of where this theory started. And so when they blocked the monoamine oxidase, um, it actually allowed for repletion of the synaptic cleft and so they were like, oh, well, we must think that depression is related to this depletion of monoamines, such as norepinephrine, serotonin, and dopamine. So they decided to craft a medication called imipramine, which is a tricyclic antidepressant. So we've heard a number of medications in this class um, that they found in the same work, if reserpine depleted those monoamines, we were able to block the serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which allowed then the serotonin to be repleted in the synapse and people would feel better. And so you're thinking, well, wait a second, we, we solved it. We figured out the issue. We're finding that depressed mood is related to a depletion of monoamines. And so therefore, why can't we just use imipramine? Well, as many of you are aware, um, the, the tricyclic antidepressants, as well as the monoamine oxidase inhibitors, have a lot of side effects a lot of drug interactions. And so if we were to stop here, that would be a pretty 
pretty bad disservice to our patients um, by not finding a medication that maybe works in the same way, but has a lot less side effects. And that actually brings us into the next part as we're kind of reaching the climax of our story, which is the introduction of fluoxetine, which was the first SSRI approved. Um, some cool things about fluoxetine is that this was actually one of the first medications obviously approved as our first line agents for depression, but also had an amazing campaign that was tailored with the release of this medication that changed the way that we looked at depression. Um, it really normalized it as something that people can seek help for and perhaps get a medication for. It also then kind of started this next era of these duplicate medications of more SSRIs and SNRIs, which again, we're more familiar with um, in the use of our first line treatment. So here are more of our beautiful synaptic clefts. And for ease of observation, they've been broken down into the respective monoamines. Um, obviously, in an actual synapse, you would see all of these working inner, inner together. But uh, just for us to be able to see, I broke them up into three different synapses. And so you'll see that all of them are kind of not, they're not full. They don't, they've been all repleted of some of their monoamines, which we have been able to associate with symptoms and signs of depression. And so the first we'll go over is our SSRIs, which um, are our serotonin, our selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which prevent the reuptake of serotonin um, into the presynaptic cleft, which then replete our synapse. Again, elevating mood. Next are our serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, which focus on the reuptake inhibitors for both serotonin and norepinephrine. And then our uh, norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitors. So this is specific to bupropion, which is important to remember for our later component of the, of the presentation. And again, focusing on the norepinephrine and dopamine receptors, which allow for repletion of those monoamines in the cleft. And then going into mirtazapine, which focuses on this other alpha-2 receptor, which was part of our assessment question earlier, again, a part of the monoamine pathway, which allows us to replete the serotonin and norepinephrine in those synaptic clefts. Um, so mirtazapine has a, has a unique mechanism, um, but works as the same or similar way as our other first-line agents that we consider. So then when we think about those are our first-line agents, well, how well do, we, how well do they work? So I present to you a patient case. MT is a 24-year-old woman with the first episode of major depression and was started on fluoxetine. What is the approximate likelihood that she will achieve remission? Remission being that she has um, less or almost no depressive symptoms. So the answer is 30%. And so that is what we'll kind of get into with our one of our trials that we're discussing today, which was talking about the effectiveness of common antidepressants. So this was a large claims database trial that from Optum Labs that looked at all of the patients that they had that filled an antidepressant. And they were able to have over 3.6 million pieces of claims data. And the point of this research project was to figure, you know, if there isn't a patient-specific characteristic, such as someone who maybe has seizure disorder, we wouldn't want to give bupropion, or someone who has trouble sleeping and is of normal weight and is younger would benefit from mirtazapine, there really isn't a lot of great rhyme or reason to prescribe one antidepressant over another, especially in a first trial. So they were setting out to figure out, well, which one has the best remission rates out of all of the medications that have been prescribed as monotherapy 
for the first trial in major depressive in major depressive disorder. And so they had to have obviously a major depressive diagnosis and then also looking at prescribed one or more antidepressant. And so they looked at the, the 15 most common antidepressants, which is actually not all encompassing of all of the medications that we are aware of for depression. Um, and they looked at what patient reported remission of depressive symptoms were. I think it's important to note that there was a proxy to kind of tell what if they did achieve remission on the monotherapy, which is described in this last bullet point, being that they um, they actually were able to use the medication for the full duration, so approximately 10 weeks, that they were reaching the therapeutic dose, and that if they switched antidepressants, that means that they did not achieve remission with that monotherapy, or if they received some sort of augmentation, so the addition of another agent in order to help with the depressive symptoms was also a sign that they didn't achieve remission on monotherapy. And so um, kind of going into the strengths and weaknesses of this, you know, it did, and it did include all of our major common antidepressants. It was a large database across the United States. Um, and it did utilize the ICD codes for remission. So it was, um, all, as well as using the proxies, we're able to kind of see that professional diagnosis from our practitioners on whether or not the patient achieved remission. But obviously some of the weaknesses being that this is claims data. So a patient may have switched from an antidepressant for a number of different reasons, whether that be affordability or they've heard something from a friend that one might work better. Um, so it may not be truly a good test of that one um, antidepressant, as well as the proxy uh, or then the convenient sample as well. So it wasn't matched. We don't know necessarily if the demographics were rep most representative or they didn't you know, do how many controls. It was just what was available. And this study has not been replicated. So it ha we haven't been able to show time and time again that the next results are true or that they that it wasn't just the sample where this was the case. Um, and that kind of also goes into our external validity that the replication hasn't occurred. And it's not really a study that um, had a lot of controls or matching between the different populations. And so when we look at the average depression remission for females and males between the ages of 20 and 64, uh, we find that they're all roughly similar um, with the exception of bupropion, which I will admit looking at the study, they actually didn't really talk about why bupropion had such a low um, remission rate with these patients. Um, one thing that we kind of gathered as a team was discussing, they might've had just less patients on bupropion because it's not really one that we think of starting our patients on first. I know for myself, I often go to fluoxetine or sertraline as one of my first agents. Um, so bupropion might've just had less patients um, in that, so had a lower denominator and may have had more profound changes depending on if patients achieved remission or not. Um, but we can see that none of them really shoot over 50%. And so when we averaged out what the remission rate was for all 15 agents, it ended up being that the average remission of monotherapies was about 30%. Pretty crummy, especially since we, we know the effects prevent patients from, you know, going to work or, you know, even having just a good day and things of that nature. So it really pushes us to consider how can we make this number better? There has to be something that we can do so that we can get better than a 30% remission rate for our patients. 
And so that gets into our next part of our story, which is the establishment of the glutaminergic pathway hypothesis, which differs from our monoamines, and the approval of S-ketamine for the treatment of resistant depression, which I'm sure many of you heard about in the news about sort of the beauties of uh, ketamine. And we're going to get into maybe what are some of the, the great parts of ketamine, but also some of the barriers associated with it. And so first, we'll start looking at the glutamate pathway. And so this includes the Embler, the kinate, the AMPA, and most notably the NMDA receptor. And so this kind of goes back to our question on what were some of the components. So um, NMDA, kinate, and AMPA being part of the glutaminergic pathway. And for the sake of the remainder of the presentation, we're really going to focus specifically on the NMDA receptor here. So some medications you may think of when you think of the NMDA pathway obviously include ketamine and S-ketamine, S-ketamine being the S-enantiomer or more active form of ketamine, which are our non-competitive NMDA and glutamate receptor antagonists, and notable that their treatment right now is only in treatment-resistant depression. So patients had to have failed at least two therapies or more before starting on ketamine or S-ketamine. It is also important to note that the definition of treatment-resistant depression hasn't really been fully fizzled out. So you may find that some say it's a failure of one treatment, some say more, but for the sake of our conversation today, we'll focus on the definition of two or more failed prior treatments. Next, we go into memantine, which we're, we've learned in pharmacy school that uh, was treated for Alzheimer's disease. So not really one that we use in depression but does work on our NMDA receptors. And then this last one, which kind of shocked me before starting this presentation, being dextromethorphan or good old cough syrup, um, which we think oftentimes is an antitussive, but actually also works um, at, on the NMDA uh, receptor as an antagonist, similar to ketamine and S-ketamine. Um, and right now, it, kind of prior to some recent updates, was really only approved for the use in cough and pseudobulbar affect, which is essentially just crying or laughing uncontrollably. Um, it's notable that this was added with quinidine, and this extra component is very important for how dextromethorphan was able to hold up um, so it had a therapeutic effect different than just its antitussive component. And so some people may be asking, well, why don't we just use ketamine and S-ketamine in the setting of patients who maybe do fail those monotherapies? Um, and so some of the pros include that it does have an alternative mechanism of action. This is moving away from our monoamine pathway that focuses on serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine, um, and has been shown to have some effect in the help uh, for <laughs> depression um, and things like acute suicidality. Additionally, um, it has, again, shown great efficacy in our patients um, when they've used it as treatment. But then there's also kind of a number of cons we're considering. Maybe our patients haven't reached quite that treatment-resistant depression phase. Uh, durability of effect. A lot of times when patients are starting in ketamine clinics, um, they have to come multiple times a week and receive it in a clinic. Uh, for, and they have to then be observed for a period of time afterwards to make sure that they're not having some of those negative side effects, which include um, some hemodynamic changes, dissociation, and some profound dizziness. Um, and so, you know, durability of effect, it's not only just that they have to come in sometimes three times a week. We're also not sure if it lasts for more than six months because that's where the trials have been so far. 
Um, again, it's clinic administration, which is not only going to cause an inconvenience to a lot of our patients, but also is going to incur a lot of costs because it's not, they're also going to have to pay for, you know, the space, the administration, the monitoring, things of that nature. Um, some of those adverse effects, we also do know that there is some potential abuse related to ketamine. And, um, so then also some concerns that have been raised with that. Um, and then it's pretty expensive. Uh, and so again, we're paying for a multiple dude, a multitude of different expenses, not just a medication that we pick up at a pharmacy. And then right now it actually only has the approval for treatment resistant depression. And so it kind of limits the population that we're going to seek out to use this uh, drug in. So then, well, what about now? Well, as of August 19th of 2022, we actually did have an approval of an oral antidepressant with a novel mechanism, which is going to be the focus for the remainder of our presentation. This is kind of like the wow, this is the apex. We have, we're slaying the dragon kind of situation part of our story and could really change the way that we look at the future uh, depressive therapeutics. And so many of you may or may not have heard of Avelity which is a combination of dextromethorphan, 45 milligrams, and bupropion, 105 milligrams. And a lot of the kind of buzzwords that they've been throwing out as a part of this advertisement is that they've had increased clinical response, faster resolution of symptoms, and tolerable side effects, which we'll get in to see if this is actually true or not, and if this really is showing a benefit or if it's really just another, another replication of drugs that we've seen in the past. And so I think before we get into the clinical trial specific to dextromethorphan and bupropion, I think it's important to consider how did we get here? How do we combine an antitussive and bupropion together? And so one of the first trials that kind of talked about the efficacy or the proof of concept trial is this dextromethorphan uh, quinidine pharmacotherapy in patients with treatment of resistant depression. It was a phase 2A open label clinical trial that uh, looked at patients who received dextromethorphan 45 milligrams and quinidine 10 milligrams. Um, and it is notable that as an open label trial, it didn't have a comparator group. So really the only patients in this trial were those who were trying uh, the medication that was on, on being questioned. And so this looked at patients aged 18 to 65 who were in a depressive episode of at least moderate severity and who had a diagnosis of major depressive disorder and failed to respond to two or more antidepressants. Again, going back to our definition we're sticking with for, the, for treatment resistant depression. And so the objective was, do we actually see that they have a change in their depression severity um, from baseline to 10 weeks using the uh, Montgomery Asperg depression rating scale, which is one of the clinically, um, clinically shown scales to see if we're actually having improvement of depressive symptoms. And so they were able to monitor this using self-report questionnaires. Uh, it was they had clinically administered rating scales, again, going back to that, that uh, maters, and then also meetings with psychiatrists. And so what they were able to find is that the dextromethorphan and quinidine actually did reduce the MARDS scores and with the twice daily dosing being effective and safe. Um, and so this actually did show some promise on the fact that we could use dextromethorphan and quinidine um, potentially for treatment-resistant depression. And so we kind of go into our next population, though. Again, going back to that, well, what happens to our patient who maybe failed one medication but isn't quite considered treatment-resistant? And so um, 
Cleveland Clinic Akron actually did a single center retrospective chart review, kind of evaluating the use of dextromethorphan with select antidepressants. And so they combined dextromethorphan with bupropion, fluoxetine, or paroxetine, and then compared those with just those antidepressants. And so you may be asking yourself, well, why did they choose bupropion, fluoxetine, and paroxetine, and not something like venlafaxine or sertraline? And that's because of a very important pharmacokinetic component, which quinidine also has, which it works on the CYP2D6 enzyme which allows for dextromethorphan's half-life to be greatly expanded upon um, and to allow for it to have a more clinical effect as an NMDA antagonist. And so it wouldn't make sense to combine this necessarily with sertraline or venlafaxine because we wouldn't get that same antidepressant effect from dextromethorphan as the body would quickly metabolize it. Um, so that kind of justifies um, these three antidepressants and then also the use of bupropion um, for our study drug. And so um, these patients obviously had to have um, a diagnosis of a major depressive disorder. And then they were really looking at difference in time to improvement in depressive symptoms. So not only did was there improvement, but how quickly uh, did they improve? Did this dextromethorphan sort of augment that therapy? And so they were able to track this by documentation of improvement by a psychiatrist or nursing. And then um, it was time to first 24 hours without any needs of any anti-anxiety like anxiety or antipsychotic medications. And so what they were able to find was that dextromethorphan 30 milligrams was not associated with rapid antidepressant effect with any of the antidepressants. And now you're like, well, wait a minute. We have this new drug that was just approved, and now we're having a study that says that it doesn't work. I think it's important to note, and this, this study also highlighted that the proof of concept trial for dextromethorphan was 45 milligrams and not 30. And so Cleveland Clinic kind of like their study kind of came out and said, well, maybe we didn't use the correct amount of dextromethorphan. They only use 30 milligrams once daily, whereas in our future trials, we're actually using 45 milligrams twice daily. So a pretty significant difference in the amount of dextromethorphan that was being used. But it's a good thing to consider in our argument for those who maybe say that this won't work because of trials that have been posted before. And so I just wanted to give everyone sort of that lay of the land of where they've shown this has worked and why we decided to move forward with it and maybe what some of the arguments against it could be. And so then we're getting into the nitty gritty of Avelity or our dextromethorphan bupropion. So the phase two clinical trial uh, looked at dextromethorphan bupropion against bupropion. And so they started off with um, dextromethorphan. It was twice daily dosing for both medications. Um, and again, this was um, in patients who had moderate or greater severity depressive symptoms based on our uh, maters and other clinically shown um, depressive scales. Um, and then it was also note that patients could have previously been on antidepressant, but they had to have a, a washout of at least a week or five half-lives of the medication. Um, so obviously it varies. We know that fluoxetine has a fairly, fairly long half-life, so patients did have to wait a little bit longer before starting on um, our study drug. And then they tracked mood daily with a visual analog mood scale. Of note also, the study medications appeared identical. So if someone received dextromethorphan bupropion and someone re received bupropion, they appeared as the same medication to try to avoid um, any concerns that the patient would think that they were better because the drug was different. 
And what they were able to find, um, so our dark blue bars here representing our dextromethorphan bupropion versus our bupropion is that they actually had very clinically significant uh, differences in clinical response at week six, as well as remission rate at week six. Um, I think the most compelling component of this is remission rate, um, just because we really want our patients to have as little depressive symptoms as possible to avoid that potential relapse. Um, but you can see that over time, you, although they didn't really show over time what the changes were, they kind of discussed that they saw clinical response and remission rates starting a lot faster in our dextromethorphan bupropion and continued that way throughout the entirety of the trial. Um, it is also of note that this was obviously only a six-week trial, so we would want to know further data, kind of how it shows to have continued uh, efficacy with depression after the six weeks. And so then we'll go into our phase three trial. And the reason I include both of these is because the phase three trial was dextromethorphan bupropion versus a placebo. So it wasn't necessarily against one of our first line treatments as it was with the phase two trial, which isn't uncommon uh, with a lot of our phase three trials because you know they've also invested a lot of money and time into these. And so a lot of other drug companies will avoid testing against uh, at least a superiority against the active product, um, they may do a non-inferiority. So this was looking at a superiority between um, the dextromethorphan bupropion and the placebo. And so they started off with day one through three as a once daily dosing and then progressed to a twice daily dosing. Again, these patients had to have at least moderate or greater severity diagnosis of major depressive disorder also had the washout period, and then also tracked their mood daily with a visual analog mood scale. And so some important inclusion criteria, um, again, they had to be between the ages of 18 and 65. They had to experience a major depressive episode of at least four weeks in duration. They had to have a MADRS score of 25 or higher, which again is showing that moderate to greater severity, or a clinical global impression scale severity score of four or higher, again showing that more moderate to severe um, depression. And so some of the exclusion criteria include bipolar disorder, panic, OCD, treatment-resistant depression, uh, substance use disorder, risk of seizure, or seizure disorder. I think it's important to note, like I, when I first looked at this trial, my initial impression was, well, why are we excluding some of our, um, our other psychosis when we're looking at a medication that could potentially be beneficial? And when you think about it, these are actually, like, these are actually, uh, disorders that we really don't use uh, antidepressants in. Um, for instance, with bipolar disorder, we actually try to avoid some of our um, antidepressants due to fear of potentially throwing patients into mania. That's not to say that they can't potentially have a place in therapy for these patients, but it's really not used um, in that setting. And that really goes for the rest of the conditions we're considering. And then obviously, um, seizure disorder being um, a risk that we consider with the addition of bupropion. And so when we're looking at our characteristics, the main point of this slide is to show that they were fairly similar between the, the study drug group and the placebo group, um, with scores that were similar and composition of patients um, also being similar. And so, you know, as part of our buzzwords, we said that the medication is fairly tolerable. And so um, it is of note that the uh, adverse drug events 
um, were a little bit higher in our dextromethorphan bupropion group, about 72.9%, but there were no notable like severe uh, anti like uh, effects. So no one had to go to the hospital. There wasn't any death associated with the medication. Um, so most of it being related to this dizia and nausea that was experienced. Um, dizzy dizziness being the most notable side effect in dextromethorphan bupropion. Um, and the nausea kind of being the same between the two groups. Um, and it is notable that um, this was uh, against a placebo and. Um, related to also our, as they were comparing the effects, it was compared in our um, phase two trial. So this was um, bupropion and dextromethorphan um, and not against the placebo. So again, notable that the adverse effects were somewhat similar, but definitely greater in the dextromethorphan bupropion and that um, dizziness was really the most profound side effect between the two medications. So as we get into the results, um, I apologize for the kind of just the going between the phase two and phase three trials, but going back to the phase three trial, um, we're now being able to see what that time progression was, uh, but how, you know, not only did we have an effect, but how quickly it occurred. Um, and so our lighter blue line being our uh, study drug, the dextromethorphan bupropion against our placebo. And so we see right away that not only is it a greater effect, but right at week one, we're already getting, um, 7.2 points on average being subtracted from our MADRS score. And so that kind of hints that not only are we getting good efficacy from this, but we're actually getting some pretty quick effects with our antidepressants um, symptoms. And then this is related to whether or not we had a decrease in our MADRS score by 50% or more. And again, you'll note that 14.8% um, in the study group of dextromethorphan bupropion um, achieved that decrease and score by more than or equal to 50%. And so, and then overall that group experienced a decline in that score by 50% or greater in 54% of those patients. Um, so we're definitely having not only a quicker effect, but a greater effect as compared to our placebo. And then we did see a similar effect in our clinical global impressions in scale um, related to improvement. So we did on average at the end have 57.6% uh, of patients having marked or moderate improvement in their clinical global impressions scale improvement. So we're looking at adverse effects as it's the dextromethorphan bupropion uh, related to the placebo. Again, we're still having that greater effect of adverse events in our dextromethorphan bupropion, mostly focused again on that dizzy dizziness and nausea. Um, and so that's something that we can think about when, when we want to potentially discuss starting this medication in our patients and ways that we may be able to negate or at least counsel on those side effects. So kind of looking at all of the information that we've just presented on Avelity or dextromethorphan bupropion, um, I present to you another patient case. So JS is a 25-year-old female with depression and no other notable medical history. She was recently on sertraline, which she said didn't really relieve her symptoms. You find out that she was on the adequate dose for the adequate period of time. This is incredibly important because obviously our um, compliance to medications and not being on it long enough are a lot of reasons why patients may think that they have failed some of their antidepressants. And so we, we would consider this a therapeutic failure because she was on the adequate dose for the adequate period of time. 
And so this is an open-ended question for you to kind of consider maybe what are some new medications or a new medication that you would start in this patient, given that she's only been on one previous um, antidepressant and she doesn't have any notable medical history that you would be concerned about? Yeah, so I definitely agree with the fact that um, most times we would be considering potentially adding in, uh, changing to a different SSRI or SNRI. So if she was previously on sertraline, hasn't tried anything else before, then we would potentially try something like fluoxetine or venlafaxine, things of that nature. Um, but I think one, and, and then also I did see ketamine. So she only failed one therapy and based on the definition we're kind of working with and the fact that she really only failed like one therapy so far, I wouldn't really move to starting her on ketamine quite yet. Um, if maybe she had failed a couple of the other SSRIs or SNRIs, we'd look at ketamine. Um, but for this, ooh, pharmacogenomics, that's, that. okay, that was an excellent answer. Um, <laughs> we do that a lot, obviously, here at Mayo. and um, But obviously, then that comes to be an accessibility issue that maybe some other institutions don't have the pleasure of being able to use pharmacogenomics like we can, but is definitely um, a diff an excellent uh point to bring up. And then a number of you mentioned kind of that dextromethorphan and bupropion, kind of that medication we're discussing today, um, which is kind of something that I was thinking about as well, sort of this like second first line agent. And we'll kind of go into some of the, you know, benefits of this trial and maybe some of what are the hindrance of the trial were. And so the strengths were, you know, we compared to a first-line agent for depression. We did, in our phase two trial, we compared Avelity to uh, Bupropion, and we did see that it did have an increased effect. And so we are kind of able to assess like, well, it's likely related to that addition of dextromethorphan that increased our clinical response and that quickness of our clinical response. Um, again, the composition of our patients' populations were similar and the medications were blinded. So we're not getting that, um, that bias in there. Some of the limitations is that there was some exclusion of patients with other mental health disorders or significant medical comorbidities. Um, and so it just kind of decreases maybe the patient population we could consider this for, but that's not to say that, you know, again, this would be an agent we would necessarily think of in obsessive compulsive disorder or bipolar disorder. Um, so it kind of is like both like a limitation and also a consideration of how we deal with normal um, psychosis therapeutics. Um, they did have frequent clinical assessment, and so um, you they may feel that they had to respond that they were feeling better because they were constantly people talking to them, or they may have benefited just by being supported, that someone was checking in on them frequently, and that might have helped elevate their mood as well. The dropout rate of the dextromethorphan bupropion group was 24.1%, which is what we would expect for a trial on antidepressants, but was significantly higher than the dropout rate of the placebo group. Um, so that was about 10%, and we'd normally expect that to be at least around 17% um, in these kind of trials. So that was kind of a weird thing that we couldn't really parse out why there was so much dropout or really so much less dropout in our, our bupropion group. But it is notable this is what we would expect with a trial with an antidepressant. It was limited to six weeks, so we can't see what the overall long-term effect of it is. And um, the, ther the dose that we gave, which ended up being 105 milligrams twice daily for a total dose of 210, isn't necessarily a standard dose of bupropion, although the study did come out and say that there was a previous trial that tested um, patients taking 150 milligrams versus 300 milligrams of bupropion, 
and didn't and actually did see very similar clinical efficacy, but that was only one trial. So there is still this kind of wasn't an effective dose. Are we really comparing it against like a good medication? But their reasoning for doing that 210 was so that you would keep the bupropion dose consistent between the new medication and then um, the study medication in the phase two. So place in therapy, um, I think it really is a great option as a second line, like a first line second agent for patients who have failed their first antidepressant therapy who were previously on adequate dosing and duration. Um, so maybe if that sertraline, that patient who was on sertraline didn't have a greater response, uh, maybe utilizing that in her, um, not to be used in treatment-resistant depression, and patients who uh, would be used in patients who do not have comorbidities with other psychiatric disorders. And so we're kind of still left with a couple of questions, um, whether or not the question of the NMDA antagonism versus mu opioid receptor agonist with ketamine, if it really is relying solely on the NMDA pathway or if there's another component which isn't being addressed by dextromethorphan, um, that assertion of the fact acting depression release, relief, we saw it in our two trials, would like to see it again in some future trials, as well as that long-term efficacy. And so in conclusion, uh, dextromethorphan bupropion serves as a unique dual pathway oral medication that may pave the way for more accessible options to increase options to treat MDD. And it may be a second agent after failure of first therapy with adequate dosing and duration. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.